Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 196. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show we have lined up for you today. Give you a little heads up. We have our good old Fred Heimbaugh with his graphic fan fact article. Then we have Main Fiction, which is The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window by Rachel Swarsky. This is a novella that's up for a Hugo and won a Nebula Award as well. So how about that? Then we have an interview with our very own Amy H. Sturgis, all about time travel. Ho ho! So there you go. That is what is in today's show. Before we jump into that, a couple of bits of news. Again, don't forget, tickets are on sale for the Time Travel Lecture. Tickets are going well as well. So if you want to be a part of, of that, please pop over to the front of the website and sign up. We have live lectures by Connie Willis, Ted Chang and our very own Amy H. Sturgis. It is on the 23rd of July. Now, if you can't make the 23rd of July... Again, please just sign up. <laughs> yeah, sign up. But about seven days afterwards, I will send everyone who's been there will get the kind of the video, the HD video of the event as well. So you've got that to keep anyway. So please pop over to Starship Sofa. There's a link there for the holodeck, holodeckworkshops.com and sign up for the time travel lecture, which is, I'm looking forward to it because I think time travel, and like that's what I'm going to be talking about with Amy as well later on in the show. There's something fundamentally, you know what I mean? It's just like, it just gets the excitement bubbles popping away, especially, in, you know, in me with science fiction. It's one of them little, you know, little bits of genres that just make it so special. And you can hear what Amy's got to say as well on the subject. And I wish as well I'd sold an, as many tickets as I've had emails and messages on Facebook and Twitter for people coming back to us saying, Hey, Tony, I've just seen, I've just listened to the time travel lecture. You do a great job as, as if they've just been and come back and told us about it from the future. No more of those emails. Honestly, buy a ticket, man. You're just doing me head in. <laughs> So that is coming up at the end of the show. But also, just to let you know, starting next week, and it's actually on the 13th, it runs from the 13th to the 15th, we are going to have, Starship Sofa is going to have a crazy mega sale. All books and the videos that I've done for the Narrator's Workshop, the Writer's Workshop, and the TV Film Script Workshop, all are going to be reduced. Those video ones are going to be reduced half price just for these three days. It's on the Wednesday, the Thursday, and Friday next week. I've sent out emails, so if you haven't gotten one, check your, your spam box and everything like that. I've been mentioning it on Twitter and Facebook. But next week, I'll mention it as well. 
and all Starship Sofa's books, Volume 1, Volume 2, and the Captain's Logs, they've got 30% off. So this is going to be some sort of like special mega sale, just for those three days, just to kind of pull some money at the covers. We are going on our happy holidays to the Greek island of Rhodes, the family and I, then this is when... We're actually, there's going to be two weeks off in August, round, from around about the 3rd, I think, to the 17th is when we're going to be off air. But it's all just to kind of collect money for that, you know, so those are the, the kind of the sale items. And you know you know what's funny as well? We book up, you know, we normally go camping about 100 miles away and it rains and everything like that. And this year we thought, we're going to go away and get a nice holiday at Greek Island, you know what I mean? Lots of scuba diving and all that kind of stuff for the kids. And have you seen the news about Greece? <laughs> Riding in the streets. I'm going there on my holidays with a family. Sods, Lord. Hopefully, it's kind of sorted itself out there like that. But you know what I mean? So, yes, they're going off subject there. We have a sale. Starship Silver has a sale starting the 13th, running to the 15th. 30% and 50% off her things for a three-day special. Do look out for that. Like I say, I'll drop another email next week if anyone's on the email list. If you want to come over and sign up for that as well. You get actually the Captain's Logs PDF free. So, so there you go. <laughs> So, we will kick off straight away with our very own Fred Heimbaugh with his graphic fan, Fred. Hello, Sofa people. Fred Heimbaugh here, the graphic fan. And on behalf of all the peace-loving people of planet Earth, I bring you greetings. Today we're going underground. We're exploring the dark, smelly, claustrophobic world of graphic novels outside the respectable mainstream. We're going to be covering some adult topics today. So if there are any little kitties within earshot, I suggest you plunk them down in front of an episode of SpongeBob until this is over. As an example, uh, let me tell you about a book I'm holding right here in my hands right now. It's called Maggots. And let me read from the uh, front inside flap. General Instructions for Reading Maggots, Volume 3. Down page 1, up page 2. Back and forth. Or sometimes it's tricky, like page 4 gets weird. Read bottom two lines from left. Huh, funny. Stay alert. And from the back flap... Maggots is a facsimile of a book Brian Chippendale completed, but never printed in 1996 and 97 while living in Fort Thunder, Providence, Rhode Island. Frantically drawn over the pages of a Japanese book catalog, Chippendale's first masterpiece has lain dormant for a decade. Now the author of Ninja and drummer for Lightning Bolt takes readers back to where it all began. And that bit uh, there, drawn over the pages of a Japanese book catalog, that's our first clue that we're dealing with an underground work of art or possibly, possibly, outsider art. Also, the fact that it was printed, uh, it was completed, but never printed. That's another clue. On the other hand, we're talking about someone who's the author of Ninja and drummer for Lightning Bolt. I think there's a rule somewhere that if you're a drummer for anybody, you can't be underground. 
So I open up the book, and the first thing, it's a little unusual format for a graphic novel. It's only about four inches by six, or slightly bigger. So it looks like a pocket-sized book. Uh, although it's pretty thick, I'd say there's, um, I don't know, probably more than 100 pages. They're not numbered. But uh, it's kind of thick. It's a long, uh, long graphic novel. And flipping through the pages, I see that all the panels, nearly every panel in this book, is tiny. Many of them, most of them, less than one inch by one inch. It's uh, just black, thick black ink or possibly dark pencil on a white background. I don't see any grayscale, so the uh, ultra contrast there is is harsh and off-putting. You can see the Japanese writing bleeding through anywhere where there's white space. We're talking about a mess. This is an off-putting piece of art here. Let's flip to that first page, and I'm looking through the panels here, trying to remember what those wacky instructions were, and I'm looking at a little dude. I, he looks like an alien. He's got big almond-shaped eyes, an oversized head, and let's see, what is he doing? He's got his hands down there by his... Oh my goodness, it looks like he's performing a TSA-style airport security inspection on himself. He is, I, I can't believe what he's doing. Turn the page. More and more. His little, and he's still doing it. And now there's a tree or something in there. What on? Well, okay. Let me tell you something. I'm a classical music lover. I produce classical music. I understand that there are certain types of art which are more demanding than others. They expect from the consumer a certain effort, uh, an attempt to understand, and then presumably from that extra effort will flow extra rewards. And I realize that I'm taking a risk by walking away from maggots. Maybe there's some wonderful insight into the human condition, which I will never understand because of my de this decision I'm making now to not read maggots. But you know what? Life is short. I'm just not interested in reading something, something that looks like a cross between the cover art from that communion book that came out in the 1980s and the Twitter account of Anthony Weiner. So I'm making my decision. I'm not going to read maggots. Let's uh, define these terms here. I understand underground to mean comics which have an audience and get published by whatever means, but which are limited in their appeal, usually because they are seen as disreputable. Comics can be driven to the underground due to the work of some formal authority or due to informal agreement based on some widespread cultural attitude. Outsider art and outsider comics specifically are so underground, they lack an audience. They are too vile, or more typically, simply too weird ever to attract attention. I cannot do a review of underground comics without covering R. Crumb. Robert Crumb is the Michelangelo of underground comics. His best known works are Keep On Truckin', which appeared on t-shirts everywhere in my youth everywhere, as well as Fritz the Cat and Mr. Natural. He's written a comics version of the book of Genesis, which remains faithful to the text.
Crumb's nervous drive to be always drawing has given him a phenomenal technique and resulted in a huge body of work. So in spite of everything else there is to say about him, this you need to remember. He is a superb visual artist. He's also a pornographer, and he's autistic, and he's the son of an abusive, tyrannical father who actually broke Robert's collarbone in a fit of rage when Robert was only five years old. Robert's need to escape this nightmare drove him to cartoons. His awkwardness with women drove him to pornographic subjects. His typical theme is a woman's body as a highly desirable, inanimate object. Robert and his two brothers never really recovered from their father's abuse or their mother's addiction to diet pills, as is obvious from documentary footage of the three of them. In fact, it's shocking to transition from Robert as a lonely, deeply neurotic, shameful, confused, and barely functional man-boy to Robert with his brothers, where he is transformed, by contrast, into a phenomenally famous, successful, and with-it adult. It's instructional to watch documentary footage of Crumb with his adult son, also an artist, as they draw together. Robert is clearly the better artist, and he doesn't withhold criticism of his son's work, but it's charming to see him achieve what is essentially a blessedly normal relationship. I'd almost say it was inspiring. But the pornography. In one notorious example, published by Zap Comics, A man receives a live but headless woman as a gift. He makes use of the body in the obvious way, obvious from an adolescent male perspective, of course. To Crumb's credit, his first impulse was to throw this story in the trash. Oddly, it was his wife who rescued it and urged him to publish it. I will urge you to read one work, The Religious Experience of Philip K. Dick. Look for a link in the show notes. Here, Crumb's hyper-detailed yet fuzzy penstrokes perfectly express Dick's fuzzy vision of an ancient Roman world populated by primitive Christians superimposed upon modern-day California. I loved this cartoon long before I noticed it was by Crumb, and longtime fans of Starship Sofa may remember I told Tony about this cartoon back when he and Kieran were doing a show on Dick. Now let's talk about Henry Darger. The most mysterious of the outsider artists, of those who haven't disappeared into complete obscurity, is Henry Darger of Chicago, Illinois, who lived from probably 1892 until 1973. Darger's magnum opus is a 15,000-page, single-spaced, typed manuscript entitled, here it is, folks, The story of the Vivian girls in what is known as the realms of the unreal of the Glandeco-Angelinian war storm caused by the child slave rebellion. (sighs) He accompanied this work with a set of several hundred drawings and watercolor paintings, and thus the book can be considered a graphic novel if one allows for an elastic definition. Darger may have suffered from Tourette's syndrome and almost certainly autism, but it's clear from his quoted statements that he suffered no deficiency in language. The real disaster in his life occurred when his father's illness put Henry into an orphanage and later an asylum for the feeble-minded where he suffered under a strict regimen of work and punishment. He eventually escaped, 
God apparently decided his life had not yet received its full measure of weird experiences because while walking back to Chicago, Darger witnessed a tornado destroying a town. It made a lasting impression. Darger's adult life was one of solitude and a routine consisting of daily Catholic mass, work as a janitor, and the scavenging of other people's trash. His dress was shabby but clean, and he had almost no capacity for human relationships. His sole creative outlet was his novel. He did have one social ambition, to start a children's protective society that would place orphans in loving homes. Obviously, Darger was the last person on earth to be able to accomplish such a thing. I think I'd rather die than read Vivian Girls, but reading about it is almost endlessly fascinating. No one even suspected the manuscript's existence until just before Darger's death. By a stroke of great fortune, Darger's landlords were Nathan and Kyoko Lerner. Nathan was an accomplished photographer, and both the learners possessed the drive and the smarts needed to make Darger's work widely known, which culminated in gallery shows and a 2004 documentary by Jessica Yu called In the Realms of the Unreal, The Mystery of Henry Darger. The documentary is really the way to get to know Darger and his work. You ought to see it. A summary of the novel's plot comes from Wikipedia. It, quote, postulates a large planet around which Earth orbits as a moon and where most people are Christian, mostly Catholic. The majority of the story concerns the adventures of the daughters of Robert Vivian, seven sisters who are princesses of the Christian nation of Abiania and who assist a daring rebellion against the evil John Manley's regime of child slavery imposed by the Glandolinians. Children take up arms in their own defense and are often slain in battle or viciously tortured by the Glandolinian overlords. The elaborate mythology also includes a species called the uh, boy, the uh, Blengigominians, or Blengans for short, gigantic winged beings with curved horns who occasionally take human or part human form, even disguising themselves as children, unquote. Oh, man, is that just perfectly calibrated for maximum weirdness or what? Darger's drawings show an eye for vivid color, but they mainly consist of cliched copies of photographs, I mean tracings, really, of photographs and illustrations from magazines and coloring books. His obsession with child abuse and torture make you suspect a very disturbed psychology is at work especially when you consider that many of the children are drawn nude, and sometimes penises are visible on the little girls. I'm sure you react with horror, as I did, but then I heard of an alternative theory that stood me on my head. We'll never know for sure, but it's quite possible that Darger gave his girls penises because no one ever told him that nature has not. Those of you with long memories will recall I once threatened to talk about Jack Chick in one of these reviews. Today is that day. Jack Chick is insanely famous within certain circles. He may be the most widely published comic book author in the world. Yet he is generally unknown. I bet you've never heard of him. And completely ignored as an artist. How can this be? 
It's because his comics are fundamentalist Christian tracts. Very fundamentalist. His message is primarily negative. Most of his comics are single-message screeds, denouncing the Catholic Church or homosexuals or modern translations of the Bible or the United Nations or Mormons or evolutionists. This makes him controversial, to say the least, and even his fans tend to view him purely as an evangelist. Debates about Jack Chick are always debates about his message or his persuasiveness. I think this overlooks another fascinating angle. Just like Robert Crumb, Jack Chick has honed his craft by means of a massive, obsessive output. Look past the message, I urge you. Stop thinking of these comics as religious tracts and start saying to yourself the magic words. Underground art. You will see Chick in a completely different light. In fact, Chick is more than his artwork, which in fact have been drawn by others in recent years. His panels efficiently move the story ahead. He is a master storyteller and polemicist. All the tricks of the propagandist are on display. Those characters in the comics who agree with Chick are always drawn attractively. Those who disagree are given faces that smirk or contort with rage. It's odd that Chick, who has lived a reclusive life and who has found a home in a community not tending to foster the graphic arts, is nevertheless steeped in the conventions of the comics medium. Look at the panel from a comic called The Beast. Tony will supply a link in the show notes. Scroll halfway down. You'll find a panel that shows the future world dictator, the literal Antichrist, standing on a floating platform flanked by armed soldiers and backlit by an illuminated world map. This, my friends, is a science fiction image. The vibe I get is that of the Emperor Palpatine addressing the Galactic Senate. The entire scenario described by this comic, Chick's version of the literal apocalypse, is nothing less than a work of speculative fiction. You might miss that, however, because Chick would insist that there is nothing speculative about it. My wish is that more people could notice Jack Chick's comics and enjoy them as highly unusual, in fact bizarre, creative artifacts. He is an American Christian fundamentalist through and through, yet his delivery has originality and panache way beyond anything you'd normally expect from that group. If I can come around to the view that Robert Crumb deserves our understanding and appreciation, you can do the same for Jack Chick. I'd like to claim to be the first person willing to approach Jack Chick on this level, but that may not be true. It turns out the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of American History has paid him a little attention in an exhibit of American pop culture. Still, he deserves far more attention than he has received to date. Note that the unifying element in all these men, beyond the fact that they are all men, is autism. For Crom and Darger, there's no doubt in my mind. For Jack Chick, I have less biographical evidence to base it on, but my suspicions remain. Chick's approach to Christianity is focused on theology. There's little attention on the relational side of faith. For Jack Chick, the issue is, do you assent to a list of beliefs? Can you check the boxes? This is a sign of a mechanistic, formulaic mind, I think, 
especially because many of the beliefs are contrarian, and therefore a sign of a kind of intellectual courage. This religious attitude seems highly truncated to me and very male. In other words, autistic. That would explain why the underground is male-dominated. Men are weird. I will see you next time on The Graphic Fan. So long. There you go, Frederick, sir. Thank you very much. Listen out next time for Fred's instalment of The Graphic Fan. So we come up to the main fiction. And just before we get into the main fiction, it is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. So we're going to get kind of a nice special on Amy. And next week is when Amy puts in her part two of her fact article as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a glut of Amy H. Sturgis, which you can't get. In my eyes, that's fantastic. But anyways, this is Rachel Swarsky's the lady who plucked red flowers beneath the Queen's window. Like I say, it won the Nebula Award in 2010, and it's up for Best Novella in the Hugo Award as well this year. And, I mean, I kind of knew Rachel Swarsey from, you know, she was kind of editor over there at Escape Pod, along with Steve Eady. I think it was 2008 to 2010, somewhere around them years. So that's how I kind of knew her. But then I knew, I knew she kind of wanted to pack in that to concentrate on writing. And wow, has she concentrated on writing? She's been published in magazines such as Tor.com, Subterranean Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Fantasy Magazine, Interzone, Realms of Fire, Realms of Fire, Realms of Fantasy, and Weird Tales. And clicked in variety of these kind of best of anthologies, including Gardner Doswar's Best the Year's Best Science Fiction, Rich Horton's The Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy, and Jonathan Strawn's The Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year. And like I say, she won the Nebula Award, but also her novella Memory of Wind was a finalist for the 2009 Nebula Award. This story is, like I say, it's part one of part three, so do look out for the other two installments. Like I say, it is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Can't get better than that. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window by Rachel Swarsky. The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window Part 1 My story should have ended on the day I died. Instead, it began there. Sun pounded on my back as I rode through the mountains where the sun rests, my horse's hooves beat in syncopation with those of the donkey that trotted in our shadow. The queen's midget, Kian, turned his head toward me, sweat dripping down the red and blue protections painted across his malformed brow. Shouldn't we stop? he panted. Sunlight shone red across the craggy limestone cliffs. A bold eastern wind carried the scent of mountain blossoms. I pointed to a place where two large stones leaned across a narrow outcropping. There, I said, prodding my horse to go faster before Kian could answer. He grunted and cursed at his donkey for falling behind. I hated Kian, and he hated me. But Queen Reyna had ordered us to ride reconnaissance together, and we obeyed, out of love for her 
and for the land of flowered hills. We dismounted at the place I had indicated. There, between the mountain peaks, we could watch the enemy's forces in the valley below without being observed. The raiders spread out across the meadow below us like ants on a rich meal. Their women's camp lay beyond the main troops, a small, dark blur. Even the smoke rising from their women's fires seemed timid. I scowled. Go out between the rocks, I directed Kian. Move as close to the edge as you can. Kian made a mocking gesture of deference. As you wish, great lady, he sneered, swinging his twisted legs off the donkey. Shaman's bundles of stones and seeds tied with twine rattled at his ankles. I refused to let his pretensions ignite my temper. Watch the valley, I instructed. I will take the vision of their camp from your mind and send it to the queen's scrying pool. Be sure to keep still. The midget edged toward the rocks, his eyes shifting back and forth as if he expected to encounter raiders up here in the mountains, in the queen's dominion. I found myself amused and disgusted by how little provocation it took to reveal the midget's true, craven nature. At home, in the queen's castle, he strutted about, pompous and patronizing. He was like many birth-twisted men, arrogant in the limited magic to which his deformities gave him access. Rumors suggested that he imagined himself worthy enough to be in love with the queen. I wondered what he thought of the men below. Did he daydream about them conquering the land? Did he think they'd make him powerful, that they'd put weapons in his twisted hands and let him strut among their ranks? Is your view clear? I asked. It is. I closed my eyes and saw, as he saw, the panorama of the valley below. I held his sight in my mind and turned toward the eastern wind which carries the perfect expression of magic, flight, on its invisible eddies. I envisioned the battlefield unfurling before me like a scroll rolling out across a marble floor. With low, dissonant notes, I showed the image how to transform itself for my purposes. I taught it how to be length and width without depth, and how to be strokes of color and light reflected in water. When it knew these things, I sang the image into the water of the queen's scrying pool. Suddenly, too soon, the vision vanished from my inner eye. Something whistled through the air. I turned. Pain struck my chest like thunder. I cried out. Kian's bundles of seeds and stones rattled above me. My vision blurred red. Why was the midget near me? He should have been on the outcropping. You traitor! I shouted. How did the raiders find us? I writhed blindly on the ground, struggling to grab Kian's legs. The midget caught my wrists. Weak with pain, I could not break free. Hold still! He said, "You're driving the arrow deeper. Let me go, you craven dwarf. I'm no traitor. This is woman's magic. Feel the arrow shaft." Kian guided my hand upward to touch the arrow buried in my chest. Through the pain, I felt the softness of one of the queen's rook feathers. It was particularly rare and valuable. The length of my arm. I let myself fall slack against the rock. Women's magic, I echoed softly. The queen is betrayed. 
The land is betrayed. Someone is betrayed, sure enough, said Kian, his tone gloating. You must return to court and warn the queen. Kian leaned closer to me. His breath blew on my neck, heavy with smoke and spices. No, Neva, you can still help the queen. She's given me the keystone to a spell, a piece of pure lucite, powerful enough to tug a spirit from its rest. If I blow its power into you, your spirit won't sink into sleep. It will only rest, waiting for her summons. Blood welled in my mouth. I won't let you bind me. His voice came even closer, his lips on my ear. The queen needs you, Neva. Don't you love her? Love. The word caught me like a thread on a bramble. Oh, yes, I loved the queen. My will weakened and I tumbled out of my body. Cold crystal drew me in like a great mouth inhaling. I was furious. I wanted to wrap my hands around the first neck I saw and squeeze. But my hands were tiny, half the size of the hands I remembered. My short, fragile fingers shook. Heavy musk seared my nostrils. I felt the heat of scented candles at my feet, heard the snap of flame devouring wick. I rushed forward and was abruptly halted. Red and black knots of string marked boundaries beyond which I could not pass. Oh, great lady Neva, a voice intoned, we seek your wisdom on behalf of Queen Reyna and the land of flowered hills. Murmurs rippled through the room. Through my blurred vision, I caught an impression of vaulted ceilings and frescoed walls. I heard people, but I could only make out woman-sized blurs. They could have been beggars, aristocrats, warriors, even males or broods. I tried to roar. My voice fractured into a strangled sound like trapped wind, an old woman sound. Great Lady Neva, will you acknowledge me? I turned toward the high, mannered voice. A face came into focus, eyes flashing blue beneath a cowl. Dark stripes stretched from lower lip to chin, the tattoos of a death whisperer. Terror cut into my rage for a single, clear instant. I'm dead? Let me handle this. Another voice, familiar this time, calm, authoritative, quiet, the voice of someone who had never needed to shout in order to be heard. I swung my head back and forth, trying to glimpse Queen Reyna. Hear me, lady who plucked red flowers beneath my window. It is I, your queen. The formality of that voice. She spoke to me with titles instead of names. I blazed with fury. Her voice dropped a register, tender and cajoling. Listen to me, Neva. I asked the death whisperers to chant your spirit up from the dead. You're inhabiting the body of an elder member of their order. Look down. See for yourself. I looked down and saw embroidered rabbits leaping from the hem of a turquoise robe. Long, bony feet jutted out from beneath the silk. They were swaddled in the coarse wrappings that doctors prescribed for the elderly when it hurt them to stand. They were not my feet. I had not lived long enough to have feet like that. 
I was shot by an enchanted arrow, I recalled. The midget said you might need me again. And he was right, wasn't he? You've only been dead three years. Already we need you. The smugness of that voice, Rena's impervious assurance that no matter what happened, be it death or disgrace, her people's hearts would always sing with fealty. He enslaved me, I said bitterly. He preyed upon my love for you. Ah, lady who plucked red flowers beneath my window, I always knew you loved me. Oh, yes, I had loved her. When she wanted heirs, it was I who placed my hand on her belly and used my magic to draw out her seedlings, I who nurtured the seedlings' spirits with the fertilizer of her chosen man, I who planted the seedlings in the womb of a fecund brood. Three times the broods I catalyzed brought forth Raina's daughters. I'd not yet chosen to beget my own daughters, but there had always been an understanding between us that Raina would be the one to stand with my magic worker as the seedling was drawn from me. "'mingled with man, and set into brood. "'I was amazed to find that I loved her no longer. "'I remembered the emotion, but passion had died with my body. "'I want to see you,' I said. "'Alarmed, the death whisperer turned toward Raina's voice. "'Her nose jutted beak-like past the edge of her cowl. "'It's possible for her to see you if you stand where I am,' she said. "'But if the spell goes wrong, I won't be able to—' "'It's all right, Lakitri. Let her see me.' Rustling, footsteps. Reina came into view. My blurred vision showed me frustratingly little except for the moon of her face. Her eyes sparkled black against her smooth sienna skin. Amber and obsidian gems shone from her forehead, magically embedded in the triangular formation that symbolized the land of flowered hills. I wanted to see her graceful belly, the muscular calves I'd loved to stroke, but below her chin the world faded to gray. "'What do you want?' I asked. "'Are the raiders nipping at your heels again?' "'We pushed the raiders back in the battle that you died to make happen.' It was a rout, thanks to you. A smile lit on Raina's face. It was a smile I remembered. You have served your land and your queen, it seemed to say. You may be proud. I'd slept on Raina's leaf-patterned silk and eaten at her morning table too often to be deceived by such shallow manipulations. Raina continued, A usurper. A woman raised on her own grain and honey has built an army of automatons to attack us. She's given each one a hummingbird's heart for speed, and a crane's feather for beauty, and a crow's brain for wit. They've marched from the lake where women wept all the way across the fields to the valley of Tona's memory. They move faster than our most agile warriors. They seduce our farmers out of the fields. We must destroy them. A usurper, I said. One who betrays us with our own spells. The queen directed me a lingering, narrow-lidded look, challenging me with her unspoken implications. The kind of woman who would shoot the queen's sorceress with a rook feather, I pressed. Her glance darted sideways. Perhaps... 
Even with the tantalizing aroma of revenge wafting before me, I considered refusing Reina's plea. Why should I forgive her for chaining me to her service? She and her benighted death whisperers might have been able to chant my spirit into wakefulness, but let them try to stir my voice against my will. But no, even without love drawing me into dark corners, I couldn't renounce Reina. I would help her as I always had from the time when we were girls riding together through my grandmother's fields. When she fell from her mount, it was always I who halted my mare, soothed her wounds, and eased her back into the saddle. Even as a child, I knew that she would never do the same for me. Give me something to kill, I said. What? I want to kill. Give me something, or should I kill your death whisperers? Raina turned toward the women. Bring a sow, she commanded. Murmurs echoed through the high-ceilinged chamber, followed by rushing footsteps. Anxious hands entered my range of vision, dragging a fat, black-spotted shape. I looked toward the place where my ears told me the crowd of death whisperers stood, huddled and gossiping. I wasn't sure how vicious I could appear as a dowager with bound feet, but I snarled at them anyway. I was rewarded with the cerceration of hymns sliding backward over tile. I approached the sow. My feet collided with the invisible boundaries of the summoning circle. Move it closer, I ordered. Hands pushed the sow forward. The creature grunted with surprise and fear. I knelt down and felt its bristly fur and smelled dry mud, but I couldn't see its torpid bulk. I wrapped my bony hands around the creature's neck and twisted. My spirit's strength overcame the body's weakness. The animal's head snapped free in my hands. Blood engulfed the leaping rabbits on my hem. I thrust the sow's head at Reina. It tumbled out of the summoning circle and thudded across the marble. Reina doubled over, retching. The crowd trembled and exclaimed. Over the din, I dictated the means to defeat the constructs. Blend mustard seed and honey to slow their deceitful tongues. Add brine to ruin their beauty. Mix in crushed poppies to slow their fast-beating hearts. Release the concoction onto a strong wind and let it blow their destruction. Only a grain need touch them. Less than a grain. Only a grain need touch a mosquito that lights on a flower they pass on the march. They will fall. Regard that. Remember it. Raina shouted to the whisperers. Silk rustled. Raina regarded me levelly. That's all we have to do. Get Lakitri. I replied. I wish to ask her a question. A nervous voice spoke outside my field of vision. I'm here, great lady. What will happen to this body after my spirit leaves? Jada will die, great lady. Your spirit has chased hers away. I felt the crookedness of Jada's hunched back and the pinch of the strips binding her feet. Such a back, such feet, I would never have. At least someone would die for disturbing my death. Next I woke. Rage simmered where before it had boiled. I stifled a snarl and relaxed my clenched fists. My vision was clearer. I discerned the outlines of a tent filled with dark shapes that resembled pillows and furs. I discovered my boundaries close by, marked by wooden stakes painted with bands of cinnamon and white. 
Respected, Aunt Neva. My vision wavered. A shape, muscular biceps, hard thighs, robes of airs green. It took me a moment to identify Queen Rena's eldest daughter, who I had inspired in her brood. At the time of my death, she'd been a flat-chested flintling, still learning how to ride. Trice, I asked, a bad thought. Why are you here? Has the usurper taken the palace? Is the queen dead? Trice laughed. You misunderstand, respected aunt. I am the usurper. You, I scoffed. What does a girl want with a woman's throne? I want what is mine. Trice drew herself up. She had her mother's mouth stern and imperious. If you don't believe me, look at the body you're wearing. I looked down. My hands were the right size, but they were painted in Rena's blue and decked with rings of gold and silver. Strips of tanned human flesh adorned my breasts. I raised my fingertips to my collarbone and felt the raised edges of the brand I knew would be there. Scars formed the triangles that represented the land of flowered hills. One of your mother's private guard, I murmured. Which? Okalanu, I grinned. I never liked the bitch. You know I'm telling the truth. A private guard is too valuable for anyone but a usurper to sacrifice. I'm holding this conference with honor, respected aunt. I'm meeting you alone with only one automaton to guard me. My informants tell me that my mother surrounded herself with sorceresses, so that she could coerce you. I hold you in more esteem. What do you want? Help winning the throne that should be mine. Why should I betray my lover and my land for a child with pretensions? Because you have no reason to be loyal to my mother. Because I want what's best for this land, and I know how to achieve it. Because those were my automatons you dismantled, and they were good, beautiful souls, despite being creatures of spit and mud. Gudrun is the last of them. Trice held out her hand. The hand that accepted drew into my vision, slender with shapely fingers crafted of mud and tangled with sticks and pieces of nest. It was beautiful enough to send feathers of astonishment through my chest. Great lady, you must listen to the creature of me and mine, intoned the creature. Its voice was a songbird trill. I grimaced in disgust. You made male automatons? Just one, said Trice. It's why he survived your spell. Yes, I said, pondering. It never occurred to me that one would make male creatures. Will you listen, respected aunt? Asked Trice. You must listen, great lady. Echoed the automaton. His voice was as melodious as poetry to a depressed heart. The power of cranes' feathers and crows' brains is great. Very well, I said. Trice raised her palms to show she was telling the truth. I saw the shadow of her mother's face lurking in her wide-set eyes and broad, round forehead. Last autumn, when the wind blew red with fallen leaves, my mother expelled me from the castle. She threw my possessions into the river and had my servants beaten and turned out. She told me that I would have to learn to live like the birds migrating from place to place, because she had decreed that no one was to give me a home. She said I was no longer her heir, 
and she would dress Darnisha or a penny in airs green. Oh, respected aunt, how could either of them take a throne? I ignored Trice's emotional outpouring. It was true that Trice had always been more responsible than her sisters, but she had been born with an air's heaviness upon her. I had lived long enough to see fluttering sparrows like Darnisha and Penny become eagles over time. You omit something important, I said. Why did your mother throw you out, imprudent child? Because of this. The automaton's hand held Trice steady as she mounted a pile of pillows that raised her torso to my eye level. Her belly loomed large, ripe as a frog's inflated throat. You've gotten fat, Trice? No, she said. I realized she had not. You're pregnant? Hosting a child like some brood? What's wrong with you, girl? I never knew you were a pervert, worse than a pervert. Even the lowest worm eater knows to chew mushrooms when she pushes with men. I am no pervert. I am a lover of woman. I am natural as breeze. But I say we must not have our population by splitting our females into women and broods. The raiders nip at our heels. Yes, it's true, they are barbaric and weak now, but they grow stronger. Their population increases so quickly that already they can match our numbers. When there are three times as many of them as us, or five times, or eight times, they'll flood us like a wave crashing on a naked beach. It's time for women to make children in ourselves as broods do. We need more daughters. I scoffed. The raiders keep their women like cows for the same reason we keep cows like cows. To encourage the production of calves. What do you think will happen if our men see great women swelling with young and feeding them from their bodies? They will see us as weak, and they will rebel, and the broods will support them for trinkets and candy. Broods will not threaten us, said Trice. They do as they are trained. We train them to obey. Trice stepped down from the pillows and dismissed the automaton into the shadows. I felt a murmur of sadness as the creature left my sight. It is not your place to make policy, imprudent child, I said. You should have kept your belly flat. There is no time. Do the raiders wait? Do they chew rinds by the fire while I wait for my mother to die? This is better? To split our land into factions and war against ourselves. I have vowed to save the land of flowered hills. Said Trice, with my mother or despite her. Trice came yet closer to me so that I could see the triple scars where the gems that had once sealed her airship had been carved out of her cheeks. They left angry red triangles. Trice's breath was hot, her eyes like oil shining. Even without my automatons, I have enough resources to overwhelm the palace, Trice continued. Except for one thing. I waited. I need you to tell me how to unlock the protections you laid on the palace grounds and my mother's chambers. We return to the beginning. Why should I help you? Trice closed her eyes and inhaled deeply. There was shyness in her posture now. She would not direct her gaze at mine. She said, 
I was young when you died, still young enough to think that our strength was unassailable. The battles after your death shattered my illusions. We barely won, and we lost many lives. I realized that we needed more power, and I thought that I could give us that power by becoming a sorceress to replace you. She paused. During my studies, I researched your acts of magic, great and small. Inevitably, I came to the spell you cast before you died, when you sent the raiders' positions into the summoning pool. It was then that I knew what she would say next. I wish I could say that my heart felt as immobile as a mountain, that I had always known to suspect the love of a queen, but my heart drummed, and my mouth went dry, and I felt as if I were falling. Some of my mother's advisers convinced her that you were plotting against her. They had little evidence to support their accusations, but once the idea rooted into mother's mind, she became obsessed. She violated the sanctity of woman's magic by teaching Kian how to summon a rook feather enchanted to pierce your heart. She ordered him to wait until you had sent her a vision of the battleground, and then to kill you and punish your treachery by binding your soul so that you would always wander and wake. I wanted to deny it, but what point would there be? Now that Trice forced me to examine my death with a watcher's eye, I saw the coincidences that proved her truth. How else could I have been shot by an arrow, not just shaped by woman's magic, but made from one of the queen's rook feathers? Why else would a worm like Kian have happened to have in his possession a piece of lucite more powerful than any I'd seen? I clenched Akalanu's fists. I never plotted against Reyna. Of course not. She realized it herself in time and executed the women who had whispered against you. But she had your magic and your restless spirit bound to her, and she believed that was all she needed. For long moments my grief battled my anger. When it was done, my resolve was hardened like a spear tempered by fire. I lifted my palms in the gesture of truth-telling. To remove the protections on the palace grounds, you must lay yourself flat against the soil with your cheek against the dirt, so that it knows you. To it you must say, The lady who plucked red flowers beneath the queen's window loves the queen from instant to eternity, from desire to regret, and then you must kiss the soil as if it is the hem of your lover's robe. Wait until you feel the earth move beneath you, and then the protections will be gone. Trice inclined her head. I will do this. I continued. When you are done, you must flay off a strip of your skin and grind it into a fine powder. Bury it in an envelope of wind silk beneath the queen's window. Bury it quickly. If a single grain escapes, the protections on her chamber will hold. I will do this too, said Trice. She began to speak more, but I raised one of my ringed, blue fingers to silence her. There's another set of protections you don't know about, one cast on your mother. It can only be broken by the fresh lifeblood of something you love. Throw the blood onto the queen while saying, The lady who plucked red flowers beneath your window has betrayed you. Lifeblood? You mean I need to kill... Perhaps the automaton? 
Trice's expression clouded with distress. Gudrun is the last one. Maybe the baby. I could conceive again. If you can suggest the baby, you don't love it enough. It must be Gudrun. Trice closed her mouth. Then it will be Gudrun, she agreed, but her eyes would not meet mine. I folded my arms across Akalanu's flat bosom. I've given you what you wanted. Now, grant me a favor, imprudent child who would be queen. When you kill Reyna, I want to be there. Trice lifted her head like the queen she wanted to be. I will summon you when it's time, respected aunt. She turned toward Gudrun in the shadows. Disassemble the binding shapes, she ordered. For the first time, I beheld Gudrun in his entirety. The creature was tree-tall and stick-slender, and yet he moved with astonishing grace. Thank you, on behalf of the creator of me and my kind. He trilled in his beautiful voice, and I considered how unfortunate it was that the next time I saw him, he would be dead. I smelled the iron and wet tang of blood. My view of the world skewed low, as if I'd been cut off at the knees. Women's bodies slumped across lush carpets. Red ran deep into the silk, bloodying woven leaves and flowers. I'd been in this chamber far too often to mistake it, even dead. It was Raina's. It came to me then. My perspective was not like that of a woman forced to kneel. It was like a child's. Or a dwarf's. I reached down and felt hairy knees and fringed ankle bracelets. Ah, Kean. I thought you might like that. Trice's voice. These were probably her legs before me, wrapped in loose green silk trousers that were tied above the calf with chains of copper beads. A touch of irony for your pleasure. He bound your soul to restlessness. Now you'll chase his away. I reached into his back-slung sheath and drew out the most functional of his ceremonial blades. It would feel good to flay his treacherous flesh. I wouldn't do that, said Trice. You'll be the one who feels the pain. I sheathed the blade. You took the castle? Effortlessly. She paused. I lie, not effortlessly. She unknotted her right trouser leg and rolled up the silk. Blood stained the bandages on a carefully wrapped wound. Your protections were strong. Yes, they were. She retied her trouser leg and continued. The lady with lichen hair tried to block our way into the chamber. She kicked one of the corpses by my feet. We killed her. Did you? Don't you care? She was your friend. Did she care when I died? Trice shifted her weight, a kind of lower body shrug. I brought you another present. She dropped a severed head onto the floor. It rolled toward me, tongue lolling in its bloody face. It took me a moment to identify the high cheekbones and narrow eyes. The death whisperer? Why did you kill Lakitri? You liked the blood of Jada and Akalanu, didn't you? The only blood I care about now is your mother's. Where is she? Bring my mother, ordered Trice. One of Trice's servants, her hands marked with the green dye of loyalty to the air, dragged Reyna into the chamber. 
The queen's torn, bloody robe concealed the worst of her wounds, but couldn't hide the black and purple bruises blossoming on her arms and legs. Her eyes found mine, and despite her condition, a trace of her regal smile glossed her lips. Her voice sounded thin. That's you, lady who plucked red flowers beneath my window. It's me. She raised one bloody, shaking hand to the locket around her throat and pried it open. Dried petals scattered onto the carpets, the remnants of the red flowers I'd once gathered for her protection. While the spell lasted, they'd remained whole and fresh. Now they were dry and crumbling, like what had passed for love between us. If you ever find rest... The world lizard will crack your soul in its jaws for murdering your queen, she said. I didn't kill you. You instigated my death. I was only repaying your favor. The hint of her smile again. She smelled of wood smoke, rich and dark. I wanted to see her more clearly, but my poor vision blurred the red of her wounds into the sienna of her skin, until the whole of her looked like raw, churned earth. I suppose our souls will freeze together, she paused. That might be pleasant. Somewhere in front of us, lost in the shadows, I heard Trice and her women ransacking the queen's chamber. Footsteps, sharp voices, cracking wood. I used to enjoy cold mornings, Raina said. When we were girls, I liked lying in bed with you and opening the curtains to watch the snow fall, and sending servants out into the cold to fetch and carry. And then, when my brood let slip, it was warmer to lie together naked under the sheets. Do you remember that? <laughs> she laughed aloud and then paused. When she spoke again, her voice was quieter. It's strange to remember lying together in the cold and then to look up and see you in that body. Oh, my beautiful Neva, twisted into a worm. I deserve what you've done to me. How could I have sent a worm to kill my life's best love? She turned her face away as if she could speak no more. Such a show of intimate, unroyal emotion. I could remember times when she'd been able to manipulate me by trusting me with a wince of pain or a supposedly accidental tear. As I grew more cynical, I realized that her royal pretense wasn't vanishing when she gave me a melancholy, regretful glance. Such things were calculated vulnerabilities, intended to bind me closer to her by suggesting intimacy and trust, she used them with many ladies at court, the ones who loved her. This was far from the first time she'd tried to bind me to her by displaying weakness, but it was the first time she'd ever done so when I had no love to enthrall me. Raina continued, her voice a whisper. I regret it, Neva. When Kian came back and I saw your body, cold and lifeless, I understood immediately that I'd been mistaken. I wept for days. I'm weeping still inside my heart. But listen, her voice hardened. 
We can't let this be about you and me. Our land is at stake. Do you know what Trice is going to do? She'll destroy us all. You have to help me stop her. Trice, I shouted. I'm ready to see her bleed. Footsteps thudded across silk carpets. Trice drew a bone-handled knife and knelt over her mother like a farmer preparing to slaughter a pig. Gudrun, she called. Throw open the doors. Let everybody see us. Narrow, muddy legs strode past us. The twigs woven through the automaton's skin had laid fallow when I saw him in the winter. Now they blazed in a glory of emerald leaves and scarlet blossoms. You dunce! I shouted at Trice. What have you done? You left him alive. Trice's gaze held fast on her mother's throat. I sacrificed the baby. Voices and footsteps gathered in the room as Trice's soldiers escorted Reina's courtiers inside. You sacrificed the baby, I repeated. What do you think ruling is? Do you think queens always get what they want? You can't dictate to magic. Imprudent child, be silent. Trice's voice thinned with anger. I'm grateful for your help, great lady, but you must not speak this way to your queen. I shook my head. Let the foolish child do what she might. I braced myself for the inevitable backlash of the spell. Trice raised her knife in the air. Let everyone gathered here behold that this is Queen Reina, the queen who would dictate to a daughter. I am her heir, Trice of the bold stride. Hear me! I do this for the land of flowered hills, for our honor and our strength. Yet I also do it with regret, Mother. I hope you will be free in your death. May your spirit wing across sweet breezes with the great bird of the sun. The knife slashed downward, crimson poured across Reina's body, across the rugs, across Trice's feet. For a moment. I thought I'd been wrong about Trice's baby. Perhaps she had loved it enough for the counterspell to work. But as the blood poured over the dried petals Reina had scattered on the floor, a bright light flared through the room. Trice flailed backward as if struck. Reina's wound vanished. She stared up at me with startled, joyful eyes. You didn't betray me. Oh, I did. I said. Your daughter is just inept. I could see only one solution to the problem Trice had created. The life's blood of something I loved was here, still saturating the carpets and pooling on the stone. Magic is a little bit alive. Sometimes it prefers poetic truths to literal ones. I dipped my fingers into the queen's spilled blood and pronounced. The lady who plucked red flowers beneath your window has betrayed you. I cast the blood across the queen. The dried petals disintegrated. The queen cried out as my magical protections disappeared. Trice was at her mother's side again in an instant. Reina looked at me in the moment before Trice's knife descended. I thought she might show me just this once. A fraction of uncalculated vulnerability, but this time there was no vulnerability at all, no pain or betrayal or even weariness, only perfect regal equanimity. 
Trice struck for her mother's heart. She let her mother's body fall to the carpet. Behold my victory, Trice proclaimed. She turned toward her subjects. Her stance was strong, her feet planted firmly, ready for attack or defense. If her lower half was any indication, she'd be an excellent queen. I felt a rush of forgiveness and pleasure and regret and satisfaction all mixed together. I moved toward the boundaries of my imprisonment, my face near Raina's where she lay, inhaling her last ragged breaths. Be brave, I told her. Soon we'll both be free. Raina's lips moved slowly, her tongue thick around the words. What makes you think? You're going to die, I said, and when I leave this body, Kian will die too. Without caster or intent, there won't be anything to sustain the spell. Raina made a sound that I supposed was laughter. Oh no, my dear Neva, so much more complicated than that. Panic constricted my throat. Trice, you have to find the piece of lucite, even stronger than the rock. Nothing but death can lull your spirit to sleep, and you're already dead. <laughs> she laughed again. Trice, I shouted, Trice! The girl turned. For a moment, my vision became as clear as it had been when I lived. I saw the imprudent child queen standing with her automaton's arms around her waist, the both of them flushed with joy and triumph. Trice turned to kiss the knot of wood that served as the automaton's mouth, and my vision clouded again. Raina died a moment afterward. A moment after that, Trice released me. If my story could not end when I died, it should have ended there, in Raina's chamber, when I took my revenge. It did not end there. The End of Part One And there you go. Don't forget, part two next week. All copyright is Rachel's, and big thank you to Amy. And we have Amy on the line. It is time travel fantastic. Hi there, Tony. Thank you for having me. Now, Amy, you know what's you know what I can. It, it's funny how I can seem to always rely on you. You know, on on big topics or little topics in science fiction. I always say, I wonder if Amy knows about this. And just to give people a background, I asked Amy, I said, Amy, I'm going to do this time travel lecture. You know, is there a chance you can, you know, and sure enough, Amy, oh, I, I, can, I can do something. Yes, I know. <laughs> you must know everything about everything in, in science fiction, Ames. Oh, that is so not true. But I, uh, <laughs> I, I just adore, adore the history of the genre and I love uh you know, getting getting into the past and wallowing around and all the good stuff that's there. So, uh, I I have no lack of enthusiasm, and uh, what I uh, what I don't know, I can look up. So, but I I'm very interested in particular in time travel, uh, particularly being you know a historian as well as someone who's very interested in in science fiction. So, uh, this I just jumped the chance, and I'm so glad that you made the offer for me. Well, another thing as well, Louis. I mean, you doing your speaking events. This is basically 
in a way, a bit of your day job as well. You do this, you know, as a living and everything like that. So you're quite, because honestly, Ian, it frightens the life out of me talking in front of people. I'll not, never do it in live environments. I can just barely manage this little environment. So, but is that right? You do this quite often, go around giving lectures on different topics. I do, um, both in the classroom at teaching at the university level, but also uh, I go around. In fact, I just got back from uh, giving a talk at uh, Towson University for the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, and while I was in Baltimore, I got to go play around uh, and look at the Westminster Hall and old burial ground where Edgar Allan Poe is buried. And I got to go uh, into the catacombs underneath and tour those, and that was awesome. But you're right. I do go around quite a bit and, and give talks at various universities and also at genre conventions, uh, science fiction conventions around the U.S. and Canada. So I'm very fortunate to get to turn what's really the love of my life into uh, into my career as well. That's how cool is that. So tell us, then, is time travel... Because in my in my little heart of hearts, you know, for science fiction, time travel is right up there. Is it a popular part of genre of science fiction still? Oh, definitely. It's it's something that continues to be reimagined and and played with. Not just the the science of it, because of course, as our scientific knowledge and and theories um, become greater and and more complex, there's all different kinds of ideas as to whether or not it's plausible. But also uh, from sort of a moral standpoint, um, what we can learn about ourselves by telling stories about time travel, uh, whether it's looking at what hasn't changed or how much has changed uh, if we look at our past compared to our present or what we can imagine for our future and how that would look compared to to our present day or uh, even looking at our own lives at different stages. If, if we could move within time in our own lifetime, what would we know about ourselves? And of course, then there's the option of having the time traveler being the other looking at our uh, our world and commenting on it from the perspective of different times outside of our of our knowledge, um, but I I think well I mean Connie Willis just won the Nebula for her uh, time travel duology. Um, I, I think it's a, a genre or a subgenre that that continues to uh, to speak to science fiction readers as it has for you know a good couple of centuries. Would you? You know, like I say, it it does get me going. It it gets the kind of the, the creative juices flowing there, and love it. Would you pick up a novel purely if you hadn't heard the writer? If it was just you know you you heard it was a science fiction novel and it was time travel, would that be a good enough reason for you to think I'm going to invest my time and energy in reading this? Probably so. Um, it sort of depends on what kind of time travel it is, uh, but if it would definitely. I'd carry it around the bookstore <laughs> and think about it. Um, it would, it, it, it's definitely one of the, of the subgenres that I would uh, go for before I would go for other ones, most definitely. Um, and I'm, I have a, a particular soft spot in my heart for those that, that uh, go both backwards and forwards and really compare our past and our, our potential futures. And so, yeah, and now that you 
now that you ask that, actually, I have done that before. I've, I've picked up a book uh, by an author I didn't know and bought it just because of the time travel aspect. So, uh, so yes, definitely. It is. So there you go, a fine example. It is a powerful tool to, to hook a reader in, do you know what I mean, from a, a writer's point of view. And actually, I never put the, the two together. You know, going back in time, going forward in time, I always just kind of wrapped them up in the same kind of cotton wool, <laughs> lovable thing. Is if, Have you got a, a preference? Do you prefer to go back in time, you know, being the kind of historian that you are? Or do you like to kind of, you know, imagine and jump into the books that take you into the future? Oh, gosh. I don't think I could choose between the two. That's so hard because I have uh, I have a true love for dystopian literature. And so a lot of that ha- – uh, there have been a lot of works that use the device of having our – you know, someone from our time go into the future and thus be the outsider and get to comment, well, things are really bad here and here's why. Um, or or some utopian literature too does the same thing. Um, you know, Edward Bellamy is looking backward, that sort of thing. Wow, this is so much better than the time I live in. Uh, so I'm, I, I'm fascinated by the, the sort of political implications and the philosophy bound up in those that go to the future. But, you know, the historian in me, I just love the, the past stuff. If it's done well, if it's well-researched and it's, you know, the, the language and the setting and, uh, you know, all the trappings of the time period are captured well. Unfortunately, I've read many more that are good than those that are bad. Um, in, in the sense of, of the uh, immersion in the time period and the, the amount of research the author's done. Uh, but the historian in me, I just, I just love that. So uh, I, m- my preference then would be those that, that can do both. Um, you know, Cage Baker's work, that sort of thing, that, that shamelessly goes back and, and forward between the, the past and the future. That way you have your cake and you get to eat it too. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great answer there, Ian. You just covered all bases there. You know, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to kind of step on your thunder with you because you, you're actually going to do the talk and the time travel, so I don't want to kind of give that away. But when, when did time travel, you know, when did that first kind of, that was the mark, or that was the writer who invented time travel. Is there a, is there a certain date and book that this kind of genre kicked off with? Oh, goodness. Uh, it's been going on for, you know, for quite some time. Um, you can find, I suppose, uh, 19th century, it really picked up. So um, you've got works like um, Aria Marcella by uh, Theophile Gautier, which is what, 1850-something, uh, 52, I think. Um, even uh, go back to uh, Dickens' A Christmas Carol, 1843, um, you start seeing this. It, these are more fantastic than they are scientific, but uh, really from the mid-19th century on, you just see a an explosion of these works, and they do become uh, much more scientific rather quickly in the sense that they are trying to justify what happens through some you know plausible means as opposed to just a kind of uh, you know dream sequence or what have you um, There are examples that came earlier, but i 'd say eighteen um, forties uh, you really start seeing several several writers. Uh, get the ball rolling in a sense that then pretty much every century after that, I'm sorry, every decade after that, um, quite a number of works, in the West at least, uh, in in the genre. So I wouldn't say there's one author because there's several in the 1840s that 
really are pretty much on top of each other there in terms of publication date. But after that, you know, once the, the idea gets some, uh, some public currency, uh, people just don't look back. They just keep going with it. So it, and then it branches out in all the different sort of, uh, sub areas, the, the time slip stuff and the, the stuff that deals with, you know, the paradoxes of time travel and the warnings about the dangers of time travel and the ones that are more fantastic and the ones that are more scientific and the ones that are more personal dealing with people traveling in their own lives and that sort of thing. You know, this is why you're so good, Ian, because you mentioned some books there, Christmas Carol. You always put the date on the end. How do you remember the <laughs> bloody date? You know, even you sent over your little list that's going to go on the kind of PowerPoint presentation, and it had all the dates, and I thought, oh, you know your bloody onions, you. Well done, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know that's that's what happens when you're an historian. You can't you can't put anything in any order, but chronological. That's the only way your brain works. <laughs> so you, you mentioned, you know, like say we've got a, a Connie Willis is one of the guests, and she's been kind of pumping out time travel stories all the time. There is there a is there a, not mentioned bringing Connie into it again though? But is there someone like new who's bang up the date who's just come out with you know if anyone's out there who's looking for a good time travel story? Is there anything you could recommend that? This is like a hot new writer that's, you know, this is putting you on the spot again. Is there anything out there that's good with time travel at the moment? Oh, goodness. Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to answer this without giving away one of my, one of my points in my talk. Well, go on, you can um, sneak, I... sneak one of them points in then. Okay. I'll, I'll give you an author who isn't writing uh, science fiction, but has just written a really, I think, important time travel story, uh, probably under the radar of a lot of people who just read in the genre. And it's a young adult novel, uh, and it's been really a critical success, uh, came out at the end of last year, um, Lauren Oliver who is uh, is now writing uh, dystopian works, but her um, novel, the 2010 novel, uh, Before I Fall, is uh, a really great sort of moral time travel story in the sense that uh, you're not really caught up in the, the concern of how this happens um, from a technical standpoint. The point is that y- it's a young character, um, a late, late teen- teenager, who uh, relives the day of her death over and over again with the knowledge each time of what she gained the time before so that she has full memories as she relives this day over and over again. And in, in so doing, in you know, having this one day to experience over and over again, um, she kind of comes to terms with herself as – uh, as a moral being, the decisions she's made, the repercussions they have, um, what her, how her life has impacted other people, uh, the influences that have shaped her, and how a lot of these things are wrong. And she has the opportunity to make some changes. And it's not the how does the girl, you know, find a way to keep herself alive question. That isn't it. The question is how do, do you make a life worth living? So that when you do die, you know that, that, you know, uh, uh, you can do so with a clean conscience, in essence. And it's a beautiful use of the time travel motif in a really kind of uh, personal and uh, intimate level. And it, it really uh, got a lot of attention in uh, young adult literature. And a lot of people who 
don't read science fiction have kind of become interested in it because of this. So I'd say that's uh, a young young author um, now writing uh, dystopian works. Just came out this year with uh, Delirium, and uh, kind of her first foray into time travel and something that might might sort of be off the radar of of SF readers, but definitely worth reading. Well, that's that's what I, I liked about your list because, like you see, I, we've been putting together the PowerPoint for this time tra- travel lecture, and you've picked some. You know, yes, there, there is the kind of the classics out there. You know, like H.G. Wells' Time Machine, and everything like that. But you've really included in your kind of say, must reads some ones I hadn't even heard of. Do you know what I mean? And and ones I thought, oh yes, I need a kind of like especially the Cage Baker one, the Company series. I've never read any of them, or I don't think I've. I remember, I haven't read any of them. So it's it's nice to kind of think. Oh, there is other, you know, from the norm, there is other time travel stories out there that I've, I've missed in my kind of upbringing. Oh, I do hope that's that was sort of my goal was to uh, sort of go around the margins and find some things that are classics in their own right, but not the usual suspects, you know, because um, when I first thought of doing just, you know, the best, the top 10 best, and I just... You know, I could have made a top 50 best, <laughs> but top 10 was pretty pretty ludicrous. And then I realized maybe that's not what people would be most interested in because everyone knows the time machine. And it's uh, it's brilliant, and I've probably read the time machine a dozen times, and every single time I've read it, I found something new. And I can't encourage people enough to read it or reread it, but everybody knows the time machine. So what are some works that maybe um, – you know, slip through the cracks uh, that that are classics in their own right, but maybe not the ones that we first think of, or maybe ones that that kind of come at it from a different angle. So I hope that that's very encouraging that you thought that, because my goal was sort of to, to come up with a list that would be, um, you know, a, a bit more, uh, as I said, at the margins, so that uh, hopefully everybody will will you know, end up with at least uh, one or two titles that they hadn't hadn't thought of before, or if they'd read, it's been a long time, and this might be a, a different context in which to think of the work. Well, yes, um, and, you know, if hopefully everyone will come over, you know, and our people will sign up for the time travel one, but what we're going to do as well, we're going to use your little lecture there, Imam, and we're going to put it into volume three of Starship Sova Stories as well, so... If you didn't want to come over the time travel, I'll be gutted, and Amy will as well, but at least you can get a chance to read that in Starships Over Stories, Volume 3. So there you go. Thank you so much. Amy, you know, you know what you're saying? Because I'm fascinated, and it might be hard again putting you on the spot. When you're talking about the time machine, H.G. Wells, you say, you know, because I've never, ever reread a book. I cannot do that for love and money. And you're saying, do you, if you've read it lately, say, what is it that you find, what other things jump out at you that you missed, say, first time round? Oh, gosh. Well, one of them is sort of, oh, how do I put this? Uh, because it's, there's a, a kind of humility that goes into the time traveler's experience. And so when he's there um, in the future walking through what was essentially uh, you know, a museum of his time period and seeing what lasts and what doesn't and realizing at some level that, that he has been in the process of through his lifetime, producing a lot of things that won't last. Uh, you know, the, the pages of, of the scholarly script that are dust now, right? Uh, these sorts of things. It's, there's a, a kind of intellectual humility. At the same time, there's this genuine excitement about what 
scientific uh, scientific uh, uh, experimentation and and um, uh, study can bring. At one level, oh my gosh, you've got a time machine. How cool is that? Um, at another, yes, but I'm working in a system that's going to end up creating the Morlocks and the Eloy, and and that's pretty straightforward. But then you start thinking about you know the the daily. Um, pursuits that you're following and and that kind of humility here's the man who developed the time machine and yet he's thinking about the fact that much of what he has produced will actually be dust and uh, a a lot of the things that he sees his neighbors slaving day in and day out about and worrying about um, really are utterly insignificant uh, compared to this more you know cosmic time frame I, I guess I guess things like that, that, that sort of insight, um, philosophical insight or, or uh, moral insight there about uh, his, his humility in the face of what, what lasts and what doesn't and realizing how much of what he's done really doesn't last. Uh, you know, those sorts of things sort of pull me up short. And uh, there are just some beautiful passages that are, are really uh, incredibly bleak. <laughs> In certain senses, but yet, yet hopeful in the sense that that Wells thinks that if we listen, we can actually do something about it. Uh, I, I just I feel like he's sort of reaching back and, and talking to us in a way. I love all of his works. Uh, I really do. But but I think there's something really special about the way he um, relates to the reader in the time machine. You know, uh, you know my level. Well, hey, he's got a time machine. That's my level. That's- <laughs> One time read only. Well, hey, it's a time machine. Let's jump on. <laughs> I, uh, three centimetres deep, me, Ian. That's all I am. <laughs> well, honestly, Ian, I kind of thank you enough for coming on and for doing, you know, doing the, the lectures. Well, I'm so looking forward to that. That'll be fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate the invitation and I hope everyone will join us. And uh, I'm just looking forward to, to being a part of things. So thank you so much, Tony. Oh, you're more than welcome. And just before you go, Aim as well, we have just played the part one of your Rachel Swarsky story, the, the lady that plucked the red flowers, that narration as well there. So a fine oh, narration. Oh, wonderful. I tell you, that story just gets better and better. So I, I hope people will hang in there for parts two and three. It's, it's a really good story. Yes, definitely. Well, Amy, thank you so much. And I will see you at the time travel. You know, and I've just mentioned this on the show as well, you know, Amy, I'm getting so many emails from people saying, hey, Tone, we've just been there and it's been great. We'll just come back in time to tell you. It's like, <laughs> yeah, right. All right. All right. <laughs> Show off. Yeah. <laughs> Amy, take care, and I will see you at the time travel event. Sounds great. Thank you, Tony. Take care. Bye-bye. Was that all right there, Eames? So there you go. If you want to be a part of the live time travel lectures, Connie Willis and Ted Chang and Amy H. Sturgis, please pop over to the front of the website. Tickets are there. £15 for a ticket. It is Holodex workshops.com or just come to the front of the Starship Sova website if you need any questions asked I would be more than happy starshipsova at gmail.com and don't forget next week it is the grand sale three days of bargains galore all products Starship Sova books 30% off and videos HD videos of the events the writers workshop narrators workshop and the TV and film script workshops 50% off, there you go. 
Or if you just want to donate and help us get, get out of the war zone in Greece, please. <laughs> you never know. Might be stuck there. Planes might be grounded. If you want to just donate and you want to think I'm doing a grand job over here at Starship Sofa, please. That would be fantastic as well. All funds will go to our holiday campaign. Until next week, look after yourselves. I'd just like to say good night from me. heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... Thank <laughs> you.